So I think it was interesting that among all of the questions that were asked uh, of the first panel, um, there were a number of people interested in the marriage and in the kidnapping. Um, nobody wanted to tackle the religion question. So, um, and I guess that's typical of Virginia hospitality, right? We don't talk about <laughs> politics or religion in mixed company. Um, but our second session will focus on the importance of religion uh, in the Pocahontas narrative. And I'm pleased that this session will be moderated by Chief Ann Richardson. Chief Richardson is the chief of the Rappahannock tribe. She was elected in 1998 after serving as assistant chief to her father. In 1989, she helped organize the United Indians of Virginia, which was established as an intertribal organization represented by all eight tribal chiefs in Virginia. In 1991, she became executive director of the Mattapanai Pamunkey Monacan Incorporated, a consortium of Virginia tribes formed to advocate for higher education programs for Native Americans. Terry McAuliffe appointed her to serve on his Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Commission in 2017. So please welcome Chief Richardson, who will introduce our two panelists, one of whom traveled nearly across a continent to be with us today. <laughs> Oh, no, not anymore, because she recently moved from Montana to Massachusetts. <laughs> so, um, I don't know, traveled down I-95 to be with us today. Um, and the other, though, who traveled an ocean to be with us today. Thank you. Good evening, and nice to be with you this evening to talk about this very important subject about Pocahontas. So much of her life and legacy has been a mystery. And as Dr. Helen Roundtree has told us, we need a time machine to go back to really find out the truth about what went on. But we can look at what we know that was recorded in the record. And uh, from a perspective of both sides of the pond, <laughs> I have with me um, Assistant Bishop Carol Gallagher, who is from the Cherokee Nation and a Native American religious Christian leader. Um, and to my right is the Reverend Chris Stone, who is um, retired now from his position at Gravesend Church. And I consider him an expert on Pocahontas' <laughs> life. And so we will get both sides of the perspective for her faith and her religion. So I would like to start first with you, Carol, if you don't mind. No. Um, and I'm very curious about this question that I'm going to ask you. How do you, as a Native American Christian leader, feel that Pocahontas was able to reconcile what you know of your traditional beliefs with Christianity? Thank you. I think one of the issues for all of us as Native people and members of various different denominations, whether we're leaders or sitting in the pews, is we have to deal with culture in whatever we do. Um, in the Episcopal Church, and Chris, forgive me, but uh, we're, we're big Anglophiles, so we're often more English than the English are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we do very, um, we, uh, get very hung up on doing things in the right order and those kinds of things. At the same time, the Episcopal Church, which is actually 
um, part of the Anglican communion um, separated from the church in England um, and is much more of a bishops are elected. It's much more of a democratic process than the church in England is um, because we were going to be American and those kinds of things. So for me, I'm dealing with multiple cultures and languages and styles just to be in the church. Um, at the same time, my people have been um, Christians for seven, eight, nine generations minimally. Many of the the people here in um, Virginia have been members of a church of one sort or another for many, many generations. So it has become part of our culture. Um, although we didn't have permission to enculturate it, and oftentimes we did it on the sly. <laughs> um, my guess is there's a lot that, and I'm guessing because as Helen told us, there's, we don't have any written record of Pocahontas writing anything about who she was or anything recorded, um, that time machine would be a good thing. Um, but we can speculate that um, on the sly she did a lot of things that helped her get through the day in her spiritual life. Okay. Um, so I'm going to just drill you down just a little bit. Go ahead. Don't, don't, get, don't get nervous. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm looking at my own experience mm -hmm. with Christianity. And like you said, for generations, we have um, been indoctrinated into the Christian faith. But do you agree that when you um, have a belief in a great creator, no matter what his name was called, and you believe that there's the supreme being that um, is taking care of you and protecting you and providing for you. Do you think it, it was a, a, a big switch for her? Because the Christian faith was the same way. So do you think that that was a, um, a strain for her to get to that place? Or do you think it was easy for her to get to that place? I, I imagine um, somewhere down the middle. I mean, I imagine that her curiosity and her um, imprisonment required of her to get to that place. I mean, to survive, she was going to have to learn how to function in um, in a conversation that wasn't necessarily hers. Um, I think she um, found parallels in many different places. Um, you know, so I said, yes, we have a supreme... Creator, I can face that. I'm sure there are psalms that she heard that sounded very um, much like songs she would have sang as a child. She probably heard things from the scriptures that resonated with her, and so probably hung, you know, clung to those places that helped her understand um, what she was being taught and what her baptism meant. I mean, the ritual of water and those kinds of things would have been very familiar to her. Um, many of our tribes have, um, seasonal cleansings that we do in oftentimes in the early spring. Those, so that would have been something that she was already able to, to turn into something that she understood. Um, getting inside of her head as to how she would really deal with all of it. I don't know. Um, because you know there are some accounts, some ancient accounts of um, 
our native people encountering the English first. And among the Cherokees, we have some records that talk about how the English smelled, which was really nasty, by the way. <laughs> and I mean, because we, 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 we bathed all the time. It was, the climate was such that we could bathe much more regularly, and that was a habit, and so that was part of, you know, we were surprised by people that just sort of maybe bathed a couple times a year. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think there were things like that that must have been really extraordinarily hard for her um, in terms of just, those are often, at least for me, um, sounds and smells and those kinds of things are often more jarring um, and upsetting than the words that are being said, the ideas or concepts. I agree with that. Uh, I think that um, perhaps she was forced to, to learn this stuff. But as she began to learn it, I think that so much of it resonated with her, that whole ritual cleansing and, and all of that that you spoke about. And that was very good. Any other comments that you would like to make about what you think about her as a Native American and her traditional beliefs? Mm -hmm. Well, I, we have no evidence. I mean, Helen's very honest. We don't have any evidence of what um, what all the tribal structure was like at the, that moment, because they weren't um, writing down all of the information we get is from men. Um, more than likely, most of our tribes, I mean, the Cherokees were not that far south from here, um, matrilineal and matriarchal. Um, so there was a lot more um, encouragement of young girls learning many things. Um, there wasn't a lot of separation. Um, I remember an author, a Native woman author, being questioned um, about by a Boy Scout leader, what, what should, we, should we do with um, these young boys who are nine and ten, and she, you know what should we do to prepare them to go out in the woods? And she said, well then take their mothers. So <laughs> that's what Native people would have done when they were, you know, young. the women had a huge responsibility for training up the young children, but it also, there was an encouragement of, I think we've all come up with a sense of real education, whether it's um, by listening and but or by hands-on learning that the women were very involved in and involved in. Sometimes it seemed like um, backroom politics, but she would have been sitting with some of the older women and learning some of the things from them of how they functioned, and you know how to keep the guys on the straight and narrow and all that kind of stuff. So I think um, many of our folks, many of my experiences have been. We are fascinated, um, and it's not just Native women, but Native men, with other cultures and other languages and how people see the world. So that wouldn't, that role of ambassador would not be something that would necessarily be foreign to her, but that was something that was part of who she was. She was curious. She was not discouraged from curiosity. The rest of European women in certain situations would have had to not present curious or had to stay behind closed doors or those kinds of things. So. Okay, thank you. That was good. Any more comments you'd like to make on that? 
Well, one of the things I think it's important to talk about with all of you is the um, history of the, the charter that came to Jamestown. That it was in there um, talking about bringing the light of the gospel to the savages suffering in darkness. Mm -hmm. But that's only one paragraph, while the rest of it talks about um, land, wood, those kinds of things. So the problem with our understanding of and our separation of religion and commerce was that this was something that was very intertwined um, with the, the settling, um, the, the movement to Jamestown, okay? And basically, um, the resources were limited where they were coming from, and it seemed like there was an unlimited set of resources. Um, and there were many who felt that whatever they could take was theirs to be had. And I think one of the things that happens to Pocahontas or Mayatoka um, is that she also becomes something to be had. Um, whether it's the church or um, the Disney or the um, wonderful ways we imagine her, you know, singing and dancing with the birds out in the, in the woods, the woods yes. that we really um, have this sense of it's okay for us to capture somebody else and take on their understanding of the world and, and pretty it up if it doesn't match with our sense of things. And so I think that's one of the things that comes with the settlement of Jamestown is this understanding that you know, we're gonna make people in our image or we're gonna make this land in our image and all those things. Um, and none of that is true. And it has made the an impossible situation because we then don't have anybody's first person statements about what's truly going on um, within, I mean, we see it as um, Smith begins to tell his story later on. I mean, it's already embellished and adorable and, you know, um, something everybody wants to talk about. I do want to share with you a story. When I was serving in Southern Virginia, I got a call in my office in Petersburg, and um, the woman on the phone, my assistant came to me and said, there's a lady on the phone, and I'm not sure what you want to do with this, but she wants you to bless a movie. <laughs> okay, well, I, you know, we bless a lot of things in the church. But, <laughs> but, but I had never blessed a movie, so, I, well, I said, I'll talk to her, don't worry. Well, um, she got on the phone and explained to me the situation, and her husband was the director of this movie that was being shot down along the James, and... They were having a terrible summer, and she was an Episcopalian, and would I come and bless their movie? And um, it turned out it was the New World. Oh, okay. And um, when I went home and told my daughters, my three daughters, that um, we were going to, I was going to go bless the New World, um, <laughs> they were so willing to go with me. I mean, I didn't know who was in the movie, but they knew that Colin Farrell was going to be there, so <laughs> they wanted to go with me. But I think there's that, even in that beautiful storytelling, there's a lot that is, is really hard to imagine what it was like. So we arrived on the set. We were sort of observing. The director was telling these native kids what to do, you know, and he was telling them to point to the 
to the ships coming in because it was they were filming the ships arriving on the James. And my daughter is looking and saying, they are pointing, he just doesn't see it because they weren't putting their fingers up like this. Because <laughs> Indian people don't point that way. We don't tend to point at people or things. So they were going like this. Because <laughs> <laughs> we point with our lips. We point with our lips. So. Um, so even the microscopic things that we don't understand about one another um, can often bring us to places of real disasters, um, and even without any negative intentions, right. can, can really be destructive. I think one of the things that I thought about when um, I was asked to do this panel is you, were, you brought out the whole economic thing, the, the, the gold, and then the establishment of the formal government, and, and then the Christianity and the mission work. And, you know, it was like the, you know, white men speak with forked tongue, so to speak. So you had people within that company that had a whole economic and propaganda going on, and then you had people that had come with the intention of missionizing these people. And so you see it flounder from one thing to the other where they're blessing on one side and killing on the other. Mm. Um, and so looking at that from a Powhatan perspective, we didn't separate no. our economics and our spirituality. Exactly. Economics was spirituality. And spirituality was in everything that we did. Uh, so it was, must have been very foreign for her to see the, the speaking of one thing and the doing of something else. Absolutely. That was very foreign to, to us as well. So is there anything you would like to add to that before I switch over to Chris? No, I think that, um, I think one of the things I always encourage people in this conversation is that um, we love now um, Native people you know, I mean, it's all of a sudden cool to be native. I'm pick, not picking on any of you, but, um, <laughs> but what folks had to live with, I mean, including the fact that um, native people in this country, our indigenous people did not get the right to vote until after women got the right to vote in this country. Um, in the state of Virginia, um, you got an education up to the eighth grade, and that's it. Um, there and across this country, um, our tribes did not have sovereignty until the late 70s in many places. And since recognition has just happened this year for um, tribes in Virginia, it is, um, we have to live with the, the, the mantle of both the burden of, and the history of what our folks had to do um, and live with through generations to survive and thrive. And um, people are doing amazing things. Native people are doing amazing things. We've just elected um, two Native women to Congress. Um, <laughs> but it has taken generations and generations of people surviving, living tooth and nail, praying, hanging on, um, and there's no um, Disney movie about that. You know, there's, right. there's, there's no, that's not romantic, um, but it's faithful, good people who hung on and told their stories and continued to tell their stories until 
we at this generation could receive them and tell those stories and share those stories. So um, the, there's a um, terrible pain and, and work that people did for our not only survival now, but thriving. Um, and you know, I include her in that because she um, was probably a pawn in many people's games. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Whether it was the church or whether it was the um, government, her father, her cousin, whatever. Um, everything I've read is convoluted at best and um, because it's not coming from her. And so we don't know, except that we can say that um, she did her absolute best in the circumstances where it must have been incredibly bizarre and awkward. Yes, I agree. She was used as a pawn in many, many different uh, um, venues. Right. And um, I often wonder how she must have felt being used that way, because I'm sure she knew it. Um, and But she had to navigate through all of that. Recently, I got a, well, what, a few years back, I got a call from my sister, and my sister has worked, uh, she's worked for the Mashantucket Pequots, and she has worked um, with the Ford Foundation and other places on native rights and issues. And she called me up once and said to me, okay, I don't know what to do. I'm supposed to go to this gala, and she explained to me what it was, and she said, um, do I go fancy or do I go native? <laughs> I knew exactly what she was talking about. Okay, because the expectation on us is that we present a certain way so that we fulfill the needs of the people that we're working with so that we can get another step or half a step further. Um, and so I just say that to say that there's a lot of wonderful people out there and in this state working to further people who will, won't know about the work that they've done. Right, right. Generational work. Generational work. Like the recognition. You know, right. Generations of people work on that. Exactly. And, and I feel like she probably experienced some of that herself. Right. Of course, we don't know about her grandparents. All, all that we know is that he inherited, Powhatan inherited five tribes. But before that, there was a chiefdom. Right. And she was an inheritor of that chiefdom in whatever way, whether she was just learning and absorbing the knowledge of all of that or walking in the authority of that. Right. We don't know. But she certainly seemed to appear to have her own authority uh, in the things that she did. And there, there have been generational suffering to get to where we are as Native people. And Disney doesn't, they don't put movies out about that. Mm -hmm. And I think they've really done a disservice to her legacy that they have, um, distorted the truth about her, which the truth would have been much better than the story. Um, if they had done that, they probably would have sold a lot more of their film, but they, they sought to, you know, romanticize this and make it something that it wasn't. And in doing so, they've distorted her character for millions and millions of people around the world. And I think it's really bad. Uh, so I'm glad that we're doing this so we can kind of set this record straight, even though there's not a lot of record there to set straight. Exactly. <laughs> okay, Chris. Chris Stone. <laughs> because he's English, you know they're proper. And so he has requested the lectern for his um, 
follow that, as they say. But really, standing, I spent most of yesterday sitting. Oh. So any excuse to stand has to be a good one. It's a great privilege to be invited to share the platform with so many distinguished speakers this afternoon. And I bring you greetings from the people of Gravesend and especially the people at St George's in Gravesend. And in thinking about this question of Pocahontas and faith, I came across an article, a chapter in a book that was published in 2011. And in there, in the chapter entitled Evidence of Religion in 17th Century Virginia, the author, Brent Tarter, highlights two mistakes, that's his word, that earlier authors made about interpreting Pocahontas. He says the first was to assume or to write as if they believed that the residents of England who migrated to Virginia didn't have any religious beliefs or that they forgetful, forgetfully left them behind on the dock. <laughs> and the second mistake is to ignore the critical importance of the English Reformation mm -hmm. for all 17th century English men and women wherever they lived. But I want to begin with Pocahontas and her final journey. It was to have been a return voyage from London to her native land, but it was cut short, as we've heard, by her illness and death at Gravesend in March 1617. And at the time, Samuel Perkus, an English cleric and publisher, wrote, at her return to Virginia, Pocahontas came to Gravesend, to her end and grave, having given great demonstration of her Christian sincerity as the first fruits of Virginian conversion, leaving here a goodly memory and the hopes of her resurrection, her soul aspiring to see and enjoy presently in heaven what here she had joyed to hear and believe of her beloved Saviour. So how was Perkus able to report Pocahontas' Christian faith in such terms? And it is important to remember that she'd been in London for some months, that she'd met a range of establishment figures, including the royal family, the Bishop of London, and that English society had had the opportunity to talk to her face to face. Yes, an ambassador for her people, a Christian, and part of the Virginia Company's attempts to recruit potential investors and settlers. And so the Reformation, and in the English Reformation, the structure and doctrine of the Church of England was a matter of fierce, even violent dispute for generations, and certainly into the reign of King James. Mm. Mission has always been the lifeblood of the Christian faith. Virginia was nothing new in that it attracted mission. And in From Everywhere to Everywhere, Bishop Michael, Michael Nazir Ali writes, it was the opening of the sea routes both to the east and to the further west early in the 16th century, which gave a new impetus to mission. He continues, the Counter-Reformation has to be viewed as a time of great vitality where Roman Catholic missionary work is concerned. Nearly every Portuguese and Spanish expedition carried its own clergy, and he singles out the early Jesuit missionaries. It's all the more sad, therefore, to have to record that the Reformation and the Reformed churches seem to have had little awareness of the need for world mission. That said, Thomas Harriot, who was Sir Walter Raleigh's assistant and a member of the 1585 expedition to Roanoke Island, wrote in his brief and true report of his encounters 
with Native Americans, some religion they have already, which although it be far from the truth, yet being as it is, there is hope that it may be the easier and sooner reformed. Mm. And during his stay, Harriet mentions that he was able to speak as he journeyed from town to town of the contents of the Bible, including the true doctrine of salvation through Christ. And so to 1607 and that voyage that established the colony at Jamestown. And the Reverend Robert Hunt sailed as chaplain and served in the colony from the earliest days of the makeshift church that gave way to the first dedicated building. And Captain John Smith recalled the place of worship in the life of Jamestown with prayer, morning and evening, two sermons on a Sunday and Holy Communion every three months. <laughs> Ministerial colleagues great. followed Hunt, but whereas the Spaniards had focused their missionary priests for their effort at mission, the English took their own parish system as their model, with both settlers and Virginia Indians as parishioners. Mission, as it's recorded, to Virginia was based very much around the call of Abraham to leave his home and to go to the land of Canaan. But when you get to Canaan, what do you do when you get there? That was what the issue facing the English was. The story of Pocahontas saving John Smith has been questioned many times, but if true, was it more than a spontaneous and instinctive act of compassion? Was it perhaps part of the teaching that Pocahontas had received in her family and her social circle? And in Pocahontas' interaction with the people of the colony, what would she have learned from them and they from her? Would their Christian faith and her faith have been in, their, in conversation? Mm. We have to understand the Christian men and women of the 17th century England in their own terms and not through the lens of our worldview. That's so easy. Edward L. Bond reminds us that they lived in a dangerous and mysterious world permeated with a sense of cosmic vulnerability. Their God was one certainty in an otherwise uncertain and transitory universe. And their, the starting point for their understanding of the world was God's providence. These people were of a different time from ours. And so Pocahontas was captured and held captive for ransom by the English in 1613, as we've heard. Sir Thomas Dale was in charge of the settlement of Henricus, where she was taken, and formidable would have been one word to describe him, a strict disciplinarian, bringing a sense of order and purpose to the sometimes unruly settlers, drawn as they were from a range of ranks and conditions. And under his governorship, Christian worship was central to the life of the community. Prayer was compulsory, services were regular, and woe betide anyone who shirked attendance. And the minister at Henricus was the Reverend Alexander Whitaker, a compassionate and understanding priest, as I understand it, who came to be known as the apostle to the Indians, someone who took his duties seriously, leading worship, offering pastoral support, conducting the officers, engaging with local tribes, teaching the faith, and catechizing. The catechism, an instruction to be learned of every child, as the prayer book puts it, was part of that prayer book. It was revised in 1604, and it would have been a useful start for Mr Whitaker's mm -hmm. conversations and discussions with Pocahontas, though not the only resource available to him. 
There was the Bible, for one, the Geneva Bible, and then the authorized version of 1611. The Catechism was a list of questions and answers concerning the beliefs of the Christian Church as held by the Church of England. The intention was to encourage an informed faith, and thus schooled, Pocahontas was baptized. How willingly is another point of discussion in 1614, the year of her marriage to John Rolfe. And he was, if his letter asking permission to marry, that he wrote to Sir Thomas Dale is anything to go by, an upright Christian man who recognized the flourishing of that faith in his bride, the first of her people to convert to Christianity, a fact recorded by Ralph Hamer in his 1614 True Discourse. Pocahontas learned not only about the things of Christian faith during her captivity, she also had much to absorb concerning English culture, food, dress, and the like. There were also the times when she would help in negotiations between the English and her own people. And there were few attentions between the Native Americans and the English at this time. And just as the English had their own big story of God who was with them in their daily lives, so Pocahontas would have been familiar with the religious teachings and practices of her own community. We've heard from Bishop Carroll something of that, and Chief Anne remarked to me a few weeks ago that not all the concepts of the Christian story would have been unfamiliar to Pocahontas. And I know there's even more to be said than that, particularly in the light of new investigations and discoveries, opening us more fully to the Native American experience in those years of the early colonies. I want to turn, though, as I come to a close, to the sociology of religion. And Grace Davy identifies three strands of a Christian life that are believing, belonging, and behaving. The hallmark of a Christian faith is someone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who belongs to a Christian group, often the local church, and who behaves in a way which accords with the teaching of the faith. Can that be said of Pocahontas in Henricus? Can that be said of her during her stay in London? And for me, as expressed in the service in Gravesend last year, commemorating 400 years since her death, her legacy lies in her commitment to the cause of peace and reconciliation. Mm. Not that there have not been differences of opinion since. There have been divergent <laughs> interpretations of her dealings with the settlers and divergences too about the way her story has come down to us, so often romanticized and so often told from one point of view. Back in 2006, we were speaking at lunch of how members of the different tribes came together to talk at St George's in Gravesend. And in Chief Anne's word, it was a time of healing. Based on biblical teaching, there are Christian groups dedicated to reconciliation and peace around the world. One of them, the Community of the Cross of Nails, is based in Coventry in England. Its work is centered on three strands, healing the wounds of the past, living with difference and celebrating diversity, and building a culture of peace. Working together towards such aims could be a fitting legacy. But I want to end by saying that for a Christian, God is God. And my experience is that however much we might try to, we might 
we might try to keep God in a box. He will always surprise us mm. by what he does. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Thank you. I was struck by um, the three things that you talked about, the hallmarks of a Christian faith, is belief in something. Believing, belonging, Believing, and belonging, and behaving. And, and that's so indicative of tribal culture. Mm. Indeed, yes. I, I wouldn't say that it's exclusively Christian, but it was written in a Christian context. Right. And so if we, when Carol and I were discussing how she may have reconciled um, her own faith and her own beliefs with the Christian faith, it seems like that would have, she would have belonged and, and would have had no problem with that. And her behavior would have been the honor codes that were written and um, practiced among her people. And so the whole hallmark of the Christian faith was embedded into the cultural traditions of her people. So I think it would have probably been an easy switch for her. Um, she was a peacemaker, obviously, and she did permeate peace. And there were actually people like Purchase and, and ones who talked about her strong Christian faith. But she also, that was noted when she met with King James, was it not? that her faith was so strong that they decided that they would uh, commission a, a Bible for her to bring back to her people. And I, I was so impressed by that when I was there and found that out. Um, and so it, it's not just something that uh, we're speculating about. There were people who made these comments and they were real to them and heartfelt in the way that they spoke them. So she was a strong woman. She was a peacemaker, and she did believe in a God, and she was a peacemaker because of that. I think she embraced faith and religion because it was something that she already possessed. And although his name was different than her name of her God, um, she recognized him because she had a close relationship with him. Are there any questions from the audience? They needed it, so. <laughs> I have a quick question, if I may. Was there any significance behind the choice of the name Rebecca? Chris, I think you would probably yep. be the best person to answer that. Well, Rebecca was, of course, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And there are some things about the life of Rebecca that perhaps are not that um, savory really, because she did collude with Jacob in depriving Esau of his birthright. Um, so the answer is, I don't know. But what I can say is that in St. George's Church in 1914, um, two stained glass windows 
went in, the gift of the um, colonial dames of Virginia. And one was dedicated to Rebecca, but the other was dedicated to Ruth. And I think that that choice was a deliberate one, mm. because Ruth was the woman who accompanied her mother-in-law from her own land back to her mother-in-law's native land with those amazing words, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chris, for that. That was really powerful. And uh, thank you, Curl. Um, both of you have been very um, wonderful this afternoon and we appreciate you taking the time to come and be with us. Thank you all for listening and this is the end of this session.